0: okay i think uh i think we can get going um so uh welcome everybody to this afternoon's webinar uh on yemen which is lessons from the past and opportunities for an inclusive peace agreement um, my name is jess watkins i'm a research officer at the middle east center at london school of economics um and uh i'm going to be chairing this event today And i just uh was explaining that this is my first uh experience chairing a zoom panel so We'll see how it goes. Um, Yemen is quite honestly, not been in the news enough in the UK over the last couple of years, and um, I, and I think that it's fair to say that for those unfamiliar with um, how the conflict has progressed and with the main protagonists, it is quite difficult to uh, keep a handle of the main dynamics and protagonists. So it's great to see so many people joining us today. Um, welcome wherever you are. Um, I want to thank the Peace Track Initiative for co-organising this event alongside the LSE Middle East Centre. And I'd like to welcome our speakers today. Um, they are Rasha Jarhom and Fatima al Asrar And just to give a brief introduction to them both, um, Rasha is the co-founder and director of the Peace Track Initiative hosted at the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. Uh, She was invited by the UN Special Envoy to Yemen as one of seven women to support the peace talks held in Kuwait in 2016. And she's briefed the UN Secretary Council on Yemen and women's rights to push for peace. She's an, an affiliated scholar with the American University of Beirut, and she has more than 15 years of experience working to advocate women's children's and refugee rights. Uh, Fatima is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. Before joining the Institute, uh, she was a senior analyst at the Arabia Foundation in Washington, DC, the MENA director for Cure Violence, research associate at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, a Mason fellow at the Kennedy School of Government, and an international policy fellow at the Open Society Foundation. Uh, From 2006 to 2012, she worked as an advisor for the embassy of Yemen in Washington. um, And earlier in her career, she served as a program officer for the Department for International Development in Yemen. So um, I think we feel very privileged to have um, these uh, two speakers joining us today. I think they both plan to speak for maybe 15, 20 minutes. um, I said they were free to to carry on, but um, our moderator says that she'll cut them off if they go on for too long. Um, But either way, it should give us plenty of chance for a Q&A afterwards. Um, I know there are several different ways of uh, doing the Q&A. And given that this is my novice um, Zoom webinar chairing experience, can I ask you to post any questions to the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens um, and I'll um, I'll read them out at the end so feel free to post during um, the presentations and we can go th- after- through them afterwards and I realize that I'm afraid that kind of cuts down on the interaction between you and the, the speakers um, but I want to ensure that um, I don't miss things out so we'll, we'll see how that goes um, so please I think uh, Rasha was going to speak first so whenever you're ready Um, Also a note to to everyone that this this event will be recorded um, and uh, it's also streaming on Facebook. So Rasha, if if you're ready, then please, whenever you'd like to start.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Uh, Thank you everyone for uh, being with us and Ramadan Kareem for those who are uh, fasting. As we all know, uh, recently, there were many uh, calls for ceasefire, starting with the global call by the Secretary General and also by the UN envoy uh, in Yemen. Um, The national parties have welcomed these calls, uh, but we are yet to see uh, some tangible materialization of the ceasefire. Uh, as Peace Track Initiative uh, uh, Director in uh, and, and our organization, we've been supporting the peace process in the last two years uh, and even before uh, and in my personal capacity. Um, um, our main focus is to uh, support localizing and feminizing the peace process. And we work in the three main diplomatic tracks, whether it is Track 1, Track 2, or Track 3. Uh, In track one, we try to support the inclusion mechanism, uh, or or advocate for an inclusive peace process. And in track two, we try to do consultations uh, specifically with women groups, um, uh, focusing on the main topics that are being discussed in the peace uh, agenda. Uh, And in track three, we support women at the local level who are doing peace building through the Women's Solidarity Network, uh, these women are working and negotiating humanitarian, uh, opening humanitarian corridors, uh, in, in negotiating uh, sea, local ceasefires to evacuate families from front lines, women working to mediate to end uh, a small conflicts around uh, water and uh, 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 land resources and so on. Um, during this, and uh, in, the, in, the, in the recent calls for ceasefire and as, Uh, it is very important to reflect on the peace process as a whole, starting with what happened in Kuwait and what is happening, uh, what happened in Stockholm and what is happening now. Um, And also the efforts, not only the UN-led effort, but also the efforts that are being led by neighboring countries such as uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Oman. And and we need to uh, try to understand the lessons learned from these processes to uh, come up with uh, um, ways to unlock uh, the bottlenecks that are currently existing. Uh, so um, if we uh, take first the women, uh, the UN-led process, which is Stockholm process, we had many reservations during that process um, that we were trying to be vocal about. First of all, was uh, the lack of participation of women, uh, the lack of participation of other uh, uh, members. There is uh, this design and in all the peace processes that are existing of having a two-party um conflict uh, a two-party to the conflict negotiations and it's not an inclusive process and there is this uh, this is the traditional peace process design but in yemen case i believe it is um, Uh, one of the reasons and the challenges why we are not moving forward. I I feel like we need more of a political uh, dialogue process that has a peace uh, 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 building approach rather than the other way around and starting with uh, a ceasefire. I feel the uh, insisting of having the ceasefire before having any discussion and the peace uh, in the political process is actually uh, also hindering uh, moving forward. We've always in Yemen had conflicts. Uh, We've always had small armed uh, uh, conflicts, but the political process was always uh, more or less is moving. So uh, coming back to uh, the current ceasefire that the UN envoy have uh, um, talked about, it's focusing about three main points, basically a nation uh, ceasefire, a nationwide ceasefire, uh, the economic and humanitarian file, and then also the resumption of uh, the political talks or the peace talks. Uh, The first um, element, which is the ceasefire, my understanding is that the national parties already agreed to it. Uh, Already they are open, they welcomed it, uh, and they are already open to it. We know that the Houthis have issued actually their own vision uh, for, for ending the war. And when you read their vision, Um, my information, my sources telling me, they have incorporated all the ceasefire points, uh, largely all the ceasefire points that were proposed by the UN Envoy Office, except maybe one or two points. But generally there was incorporation for all uh, that the UN Envoy have uh, put forward. Uh, So where are they stuck? My understanding is they are stuck because there isn't uh, a mechanism for, for monitoring once a ceasefire is announced. Um, I think they need to form also the committees uh, that need to uh, monitor the ceasefire. And in that, because of the exclusion of specific parties as well, there is a question. For example, the STC is excluded. The GPC uh, uh, is excluded, specifically GPC that have uh, armed fronts that they are leading uh, is also excluded. Tehama resistance is excluded. These are if we talk about the armed uh, groups, Um, the civil society is also excluded in terms of women, youth and civil society. It's not going to go forward if we have these actors excluded when it comes to uh, implementation. So when we say nationwide ceasefire, in this case, this is the main fronts that are between the Houthis and the government. Uh, uh, what about, for example, fronts that are led by the STC such as or other uh, areas? How is that going to be under the nationwide ceasefire? Um, another thing is that there was a huge focus between the uh, cross-border fighting more than what is happening inside Yemen in terms of hostilities. Um, this, uh, uh, so, basically, uh, the Houthis stopping to attack uh, Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia, or the coalition, and Saudi Arabia stopping attacks inside uh, Yemen. And we know that Saudi Arabia have announced uh, a ceasefire and renewed it for another month, which was positive. And I hope that the national actors will do the same. Uh, although there is reports, uh, mainly from Houthi sources, that uh, um, the coalition still continues to have some attacks. We're yet to confirm that. Um, so, the, the main point about the current ceasefire uh, is uh, questioning the monitoring mechanism and the inclusion. And in terms of the monitoring mechanism, we need civil society to be included. And we need a third party, independent party that is not party of the war to lead the, uh, if we say air surveillance, uh, instead of being uh, controlled by either conflict parties, uh, uh, um uh, in terms of monitoring the, 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 air, um, the ceasefire. Um, <clears throat> moving on, to, or going back a little bit to Stockholm, the, uh, some of the issues, for example, uh, releasing the detainees, uh, there were some reservations by women groups uh, mainly uh, uh, talking about how the release will happen. Uh, first of all, mixing the arbitrary detained civilians with prisoners of war or fighters, uh, putting them in the same file has complicated um, the the release of uh, arbitrary detained civilians, whether women or men. Um, for that, there is needs uh, the UN needs to push for. A re, unconditional release of arbitrary detained civilians, not mix them with the prisoners of war. Another reservation was that was raised by women groups, mainly the Mothers of Abductees Association, was that once this release happens, and, and this is comparison to the local uh, release that happened before, the, the exchange happens with condition that the, the, this group will be exiled to this area, to another territory, not to the area where they were captured. Uh, under the control of a specific party. This leads into uh, more burdens on the families uh, and the reunion of the families with their related uh, prisoners and and civilians. Uh, Some families need to move to another location. This means that they need to move to another location. This is double the burden. This person is uh, getting out of prison. He already lost his income. And now the entire family have to either move to be reunited Um, or just stay separated. So these consider these are uh, are not considered in this kind of exchanges and we know that very recently the committee agreed on releasing around uh, more than 1,000 detainees Um, and yesterday's uh, ICRC announced that it is very close. This is great news and this would be the official first time that a UN-led process has I think finally succeeded uh, to have the uh, formal release between the parties, uh, not the local mediation process. Um, Going to the Saudi-led process. Uh, The Saudi-led process, they are engaging with the Houthis uh, in in direct uh, talks since the last quarter of uh, last year. And we saw that there was um, at least informal ceasefire at that time, cross-border ceasefire. Uh, that was not really announced, but it was at least de-escalation. Um, and then when Sulaimani was killed, uh, kind of these effort collapsed and we saw an escalation specifically from the Houthis, uh, whether uh, the ground uh, trying to take over, uh, actually succeeding to take over Nahm and then Jof, and now expanding more to um, Ma- Ma'rib. Um, But again, uh, we saw uh, now, so for some time it was paused, but now it's revived again, and there is now direct uh, uh, informal talks with the the Houthis. And uh, some of the points that are being discussed are, um, I think, uh, my understanding is there is uh, how how Saudis are trying to change the loyalty of uh, Houthis uh, to be less loyal to Iran and to be more loyal to Saudi Arabia, uh, and I think there is division between uh, Houthis themselves. Some are might uh, we might see some division uh, in the coming period. Um, Oman is playing a role as well to support these efforts. And uh, uh, for the other, uh, basically the the Riyadh agreement um, uh, that was between the government and the STC, um, we saw that there was no implementation. Uh, I mean, the the first steps were basically the STC handing over the the institutions in in other state institutions. But we saw uh, a couple of days ago uh, the STC has announced self-rule and reclaimed all the uh, state institutions that they have submitted before. And this was an objection of delays in um, implementing Riyadh agreement. And I think they are uh, more pushing for the political aspect of the Riyadh agreement to be implemented. And the political aspect was about having a government, having a governor for Adan and the South uh, governorates and the security officers in the South governorates. And uh, this file has uh, seen some delays, but the main point was actually for the government and the STC to have a joint delegation for the peace process that is led by the UN uh, process. So if the Riyadh um, uh, agreement is not implemented, then naturally the ceasefire will also, uh, that is led by the UN uh, um, uh, will not uh, be able to move forward. So they are interlinked. Although there are two separate processes somehow, but they are interlinked, and the success of one depends on the other. Um, I think I will stop here to give some room for discussion as well. Um, yeah, thanks.
0: Thanks so much, Rasha. Um, if you don't mind, perhaps we'll have uh, hear from Fatima first, and then we can come back to all of the, the Q&A. Um, so yeah, Fatima, please.
2: Um, Thank you so much. Uh, thanks to everyone. Uh, thanks to LSE for organizing this and to the Peace Track Initiative and as well. Um, uh, thank you, Russia, for that excellent overview. Um, the first thing um, you know, that comes to my mind, uh, especially after your talk, is sort of like um maybe just defining how um Yemen's conflict is is viewed. Um Internationally, I feel like a lot, um, many outlets report the conflict in Yemen as just a conflict between Saudi Arabia and the uh, Iran backed Houthi rebels. And um, this sort of overlooks the dynamics uh, that are happening within the country. So I appreciated the fact that uh, uh, Russia talked about the complications that are happening on the ground level in terms of reaching that agreement. Because uh, all of these are not being completely looked at and they're often being sidelines in international headlines because, you know, uh, much of it just is often um, focuses on what Saudi does in Yemen or how Houthis react and attack Saudi Arabia, but not necessarily uh, uh, the movements uh, of the ground operations, which are causing a lot of misery um, as well. So, there are multiple conflict dynamics in Yemen that I think that we should all be focusing on um, and the 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 local aspect is is a is a huge one um, the The other thing um, that I want to talk about is just sort of like just step back a little bit and look at why uh, peace agreements in Yemen peace talks have actually not been able to um, reduce from the impact of conflict in Yemen, um, and we've seen this since the Arab uprising in 2011 and the Yemen uprising 2010 uh, uh, 2011, which ousted uh, Yemen's uh, president Ali Abdullah Saleh, who has been in power for 30 years in Yemen. Um, shortly after that, I think that you know multiple initiatives came about to specifically um stop conflict in yemen to um and is, and and from a preemptive sense because the yemen uprising were largely peaceful um but what the concern was that there were multiple groups and multiple interests that if these interests are not catered for through a preemptive peace agreement that it will unlock conflicts in yemen and this is exactly what happened um, in, initially, in 2011, we had the Gulf Initiative, um, the GCC Agreement, which was supposed to uh, put the country back on track, give it some type of experience in management uh, uh, of the country, make make some type of a power sharing agreement between the parties in order for uh, in order to preserve the system after Saleh's departure. Um, and through that, there were there was the national dialogue conference uh, as a mechanism to implement the GCC agreement. It was largely hailed as one of the uh, most successful models in, in the Middle East region. But what we saw after that is that you know, despite the participation and the, the inclusion, um, that has not managed to uh, stop conflict in Yemen. Um, uh, soon afterwards, the Houthis took over the Yemeni capital, overthrew the transitional government of uh, Abdirabba Mansour Hadi, which was um, UN, UN internationally backed. And, you know, conflict uh, uh, from that moment on uh, had basically brought in Saudi Arabia as uh, m- military intervention, Saudi Arabia and a group of allies. Um, the initial idea at that time and especially for the regional um, uh, powers is that this, th- their military intervention would help pressure the Houthis and bring them back to the negotiating table. Uh, their idea is that the intervention should not last for more than two or three months and that uh, after that this will force the Houthis to just reconsider and reevaluate their position which is, uh, you know, six years later, realized that it was just the wrong assessment. Um, uh, of course, uh, um, given the complexities that are there on the ground, the Houthis have allied with uh, the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had um, control over state institutions in Yemen. And all of that had you know, just, just maybe given them a... a An experience in terms of how to negotiate, how to preserve and prolong their power in the country. And um, uh, it has been a very successful strategy for them. The UN, of course, tried to mediate uh, the Houthi government conflict. There were initially the Kuwait uh, peace talks, which have failed at the very end of the peace talks as uh, uh, the Houthis refused to sign uh, sign on them after months of of talking uh, afterwards with the new UN envoy who assumed his position in uh, 2018. Um, the UN envoy has attempted to uh, launch peace talks in Geneva which did not even uh, materialize uh, because uh, the, the Houthi rebels just re- refused to participate and then comes the Stockholm agreement uh, that Russia mentioned, and it was it was seen as an opportunity to build confidence between both parties and achieve real um, uh, de-escalation in the conflict. But two years later, we're finding that um, it has met some objective, but not all objectives. And actually the situation is today in Yemen is, arguably much worse than it was uh before the stockholm agreement uh, took place um, uh, part of the reason of, of why that has happened is you know because there were multiple objectives and uh, um, for each party going into the Stockholm agreement, including the international community and um it's simply each party picked their own objective and and uh, ran with it. And uh, the Houthis ended up being um, perhaps the biggest winner uh, uh, of that Stockholm agreement because it had allowed them to expand milita- militarily all over the country. And as Russia has mentioned before me, you, um, uh, the Houthis were able to expand into... Nihm and Al-Jawf and they have plans to take over Ma'rib and for people who are not familiar these areas um, in Ma'rib and Nihm and Al-Jawf are considered to be strong uh, uh, government uh, and it's a stronghold of the government and, and its supporters and, and the Saudis as well. So the, the escalation on the ground, the displacement that had happened in these areas have caused a major concern. The other thing is that also since uh, um, um, since the failure of the Iran deal or the suspension of the Iran deal by, uh, by the current U.S. administration and the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, um the Houthis intensified their focus on the south of Yemen and shifted their military strategy from uh, uh, defense to offense. And their expansion um, it was clearly meant to reach uh, strategic areas in the south of Yemen that would allow them access to maritime resources in order to place more pressure on the international community. To, um, I mean, if from one from one aspect, it shows their it shows Iran's reach in the region, and and uh, and in, in the other sense, it also um, demonstrates how uh, uh, they can they can pressure the international community to uh, recognize them as as a power um, in Yemen. So um, th- that has been a concern, and also caused stabilization in the country. Uh, the 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 other the, the final agreement uh that we saw in yemen was the riyadh agreement which was uh completely out of of uh of everything else because that's a, another separate conflict which is a conflict between the south uh uh, uh or representatives of of southern interests and the government of Yemen, and this was a competition between allies that I don't think the this Saudis had calculated, or anyone in Yemen had calculated uh, uh, until recently. the The southern issue is is one of the uh, oldest issues in Yemen, alongside with the with the Houthi rebellions. Uh, the south used to be a a the Yemen north and south united in 1990. And in one thousand nine hundred and ninety four just four years after unification, there was a civil war um, for 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 people in Yemen, the civil war or the outcomes of the civil war closed the chapter of secession um, and started a, a, you know a future of a Yemeni state. But for many southerners, it had opened a chapter of occupation, and uh, they have been um, uh, unable to reconcile with um yemen 's uh, uh dynamics after the the civil war because the southerners had had been uh structurally marginalized uh, afterwards and um uh, as a result it just kept their uh grievance uh very much alive um and so the they, there are, you know, basically, we can see that there are many conflicts that keep erupting in Yemen. And, and it seems like Yemen cannot escape the conflict trap, especially after Saleh's uh, uh, departure from the picture. Um, and I think that, you know, there are multiple reasons for this, which I will uh, touch on briefly. First of all, is, is the biggest problem is that we've had, or Yemen has had um, one single voice, goal, party line for just about 30 years. For 30 years, Yemenis have heard the same single narrative during Saleh's rule. Um, that narrative had um, uh, marginalized some actors, uh, including the Houthis, including the Southerners, um, including various regions in the country, um, and it had uh, sort of um, established this, this political culture in Yemen, um, uh, whereby everybody was was. I mean, Saleh ruled by consensus, so he was he was not uh, the worst dictator in the region. He was actually one of the uh, in Yemen. You know, he was probably known as a beloved dictator because he had given his opposition um uh something at every juncture he he ruled by continuously pitting groups against each other um, and uh, uh he had once compared governing Yemen to dancing on the head of snakes uh, so he it was a it was a delicate balance as well that he knew how to maintain and his departure left a huge gap in 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 the way that things are being done, but also it opened uh, the possibilities for different Yemeni uh, groups and interests uh, to pursue their own interests away from that vision that had permeated during Saleh's reign. Um, but the the two most important underlying uh, uh, issues that are preventing peace agreements from being as resilient, is first um, is, is the issue of um, uneven uh, service delivery. And the second is the unequal distribution of political power. With uh, service delivery, I mean, uh, everybody knows if, uh, it, that Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the region, but it has access to uh, resources uh, such as oil and gas and ports and it brings in revenues that are just not really well managed within the country. Within that, the service uh, delivery and service provision has often went to areas that have had the best support to the government structure um, and the areas that did not were somewhat ostracized from it. And um this is a core conflict issue that cannot be solved overnight. It's something that would that would take a, a long time to remedy. The National Dialogue Conference, of course, was one of the um uh, had had considered uh remedying these issues, but um the problem is that it it was much more of an idealistic document. Um, The outcome of the NDC was just overly idealistic and could not. it was not dynamic enough to deal with the current situation as it is now. The second is the unequal distribution of political power that we have constantly saw, um, whether it was in the 30 years of of Saleh's reign or in the current um, dynamics in the country. Uh, even even with the current leadership put in place, in, um, uh, 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 which w- which is basically headed by the by by the president Abd Mansour Hadi and his government, uh, we see that many of the dynamics remain the same. Um, so uh, Hadi is has surrounded himself with with loyalists, uh, mostly from from his tribe entourage. Many of the people around him come from his uh, uh, home city of Abyen. Um And the, the the power distribution has, uh, I would say, Abdirabba Mansour Hadi himself is Southerner. So he had um, been accused of uh, putting many Southerners uh, around him in power and not distributing power equally. And ironically, the, the 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 southern people feel that the southerners who are in power are pro unity and not pro secession, and that also adds another layer of of grievance, um, and sort of affects the the um, the overall trajectory of of uh, conflict in Yemen. So the these issues have always come back to. Um, uh, shake the the peace agreements that we 've had, and um, I think that in order to have a more resilient uh, peace agreement in Yemen, we have to look at all of at, at the core conflict issues that the people are experiencing and move earnestly towards um, uh, i mean earnestly seriously towards removing these obstacles uh, from power so i will i will leave it there and just open um you know just just uh, curious to know more um uh interact more with the audience thank you
0: hi thank you both very much for um shedding light on quite different aspects of the um of the conflict and the peace processes processes over the last several years um i uh i'm gonna dive straight into the q a and um I guess, so uh, we have quite a number of questions that um, uh, quite understandably um, tackle the international dimension, um, international involvement, um, and then some that look more domestic and women's issues. So I'll try and perhaps group them a bit. Um, so uh, we we have, um, perhaps this is a, a good one to start with, is that... Um, I, this is to both of you. I, I think none of the questions are specifically addressed to either one of you, so please feel free to uh, to come in as as you as you like. Um, so there's a question on on what should be the first steps for ending the conflict in Yemen. Um, should it be the Saudi Emirati coalition stopping their operations, or should it be the local armed groups engaging in the peace process? Um, and I guess like I'll I'll start off with that because it comes back again to the kind of chicken and egg. You know do do you need the local or do you need the international to take the first conclusive steps um so maybe we'll kick off with that before getting into to some of the more um uh, complex uh, uh, questions about different um emirati saudi dynamics uh all
1: right so uh yeah for for the um for us, when now they were discussing the ceasefire and Saudi Arabia went out and they announced the ceasefire or the collision, um, for Yemenis, like generally, it felt like the, the war still was ongoing because many fronts were still ongoing. Uh, the fronts in Saada and uh, uh, sorry, Dalai, Marib, Taas revived, Baida now. Uh, so these are in, uh, on, ongoing. Um, I think everything has to stop, uh, not only focus on one aspect, not only the cross-border uh, uh, aspect, but also the the internal, inside the country, armed conflict. Um, and this is, I didn't see that as a priority in the ceasefire, like that was, uh, whether it was in the vision of the Houthis or, uh, Uh, Like their vision, the Houthis' vision was more like an agreement between them and Saudi Arabia, more than it was an agreement between them and the government. So, uh, for I I feel like it has to be a comprehensive everywhere stops uh, everywhere. In terms of the intervention, the coalition intervention, I feel like they were not able to achieve the objectives that they wanted to uh, achieve in the beginning. And so, if they move towards only securing their uh, Saudis uh, borders uh, rather than intervening inside, that would be um, much better. Uh, I saw there was a shift already in Saudi strategy in the last few years. There has been a reduction in the intervention and more into a political process. Uh, not only the political process, but also in terms of disarmament, such as the mines removal uh, projects that they are supporting with the help of, uh, I think, the UK and France, and also with the the reconstruction. Uh, Saudis have announced the reconstruction fund uh, that I want the other international community to join and start supporting. Uh, So there is already that kind of shift. Uh, And I was surprised to know that the reconstruction programs uh, are even conducted under Houthi-controlled areas. For example, uh, there is a hospital in Saada that is still supported until today uh, by Saudi Arabia. Uh, And I think this is also a way for Saudi Arabia to continue their uh, direct uh, discussion with the Houthis um, uh, away because even now with the humanitarian response, uh, 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 USA have stopped uh, uh, support for the humanitarian uh, response. Uh, Saudi Arabia did not. They are continuing the support. And then why they have stopped? It was because of all the conditions imposed by the Houthis, including they wanted attacks on the humanitarian response, including all of the restrictions they are imposing on the NGOs and UN agencies working, in, and because of the humanitarian diversion that is happening. So. Uh, uh, the U.S. had to to be uh, firm and stop the uh, aid while the Saudis continued to support the U.N. uh, process. In general I feel in Yemen if we want a positive peace we need to have good relations with Saudi Arabia, UAE and all the regional uh, states. This is if we are looking for a sustainable positive peace and we cannot uh, 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 and the same applies to also the, the Houthis and groups inside Yemen. We cannot really wipe a group completely out of existence. We need to find a, a dynamic where we all uh, can live together and there is a power sharing dynamic that uh, uh, can happen. Now, this will not happen with the current peace formula that is existing based on the two-party negotiations we need to have an inclusive process where all the armed actors are included, uh, reflecting the de facto what is happening in the ground, and also the civil society components, including women, youth, and civil society. Another thing is the, the agenda itself. I feel like the peace agenda have uh, with time like reduced, like it, it is now mo- focusing more on confidence-building measures rather than really discussing the actual issues that need to be discussed. Uh, uh, releasing the detainees is a confidence-building measure. Lifting the siege on ties is a confidence-building measure. Uh, um, all of the issues that are being discussed are confidence-building measures. They, they need to come naturally and easily, and they are picked because they are supposed to be easy. Even the plan now with the ceasefire, when they say uh, we're gonna focus on the economic and the humanitarian aspects, these are also confidence building measures and things that we need to do anyway. So moving on, uh, including the real big elephants in the room in terms of the discussion, such as the issue of the federalization. This is where actually the war erupted is because of the six federal, uh, Uh, provisions that that they have decided to do. This is why the Houthis have revolted because they were isolated in an area with no resources. Um, This is why the Southerners are uh, fighting to reclaim uh, their state because there was no real discussion for issues such as the South uh, and the federal system and also like there was uh, some issues that were supposed to be in the agenda because of 2216, which is the main UN Security Resolution, uh, such as child recruitment, that's not mentioned whatsoever now. There is no mention, and it is a priority for us as women. This is what we hear from the ground. They are too tired. Uh, We have cases of children, uh, mothers are too tired to see. Now in the Houthi areas, they have started recruiting even from their own families. They have consumed all the children, and now they are going to their own families to start recruiting them. Uh, I will uh, stop here and give uh, maybe Fatima room also to reflect on this.
0: Did you want to add to that, Fatima? I,
2: I, I mean, I think I think Russia ca- captured it perfectly. Um, the the fighting it, it's it's two it's two different conflict dynamics. But the the most important thing is that to realize that this Saudi intervention is not coming in a vacuum. And that it helps support uh, uh, government forces maintain security in in their um, in their localities. So the the first thing that we've heard um, uh, following the ceasefire is that the Houthis were continuing their ground incursions in in Adala, in nahm etc. Uh, even during the Stockholm Agreement, where the entire focus was on having a ceasefire in Hodeidah, it did not stop Houthis from attacking, uh, brutally attacking several areas in Hajjah, uh, um, including neutral tribes who had no relation with with Saudis or with the government of, of, of Abdur-Rabba Rahman Hadi and uh, areas in the south in Al-Dala. So the, the, the military operations um, are extremely damaging, but they, uh, on the ground, are damaging And they receive much less attention from the international community because they they're often viewed as low level scale conflicts, you know, where you hear a few people dying every day by uh, uh, local weapons rather than internationally supplied weapons, which seem to uh, make make us in the West react, you know, uh, to what's what's going on. and so we don't, what often doesn't get covered is, is how much it is important for uh, the Yemeni government and the Saudis to maintain uh, security and stability for the areas that are threatened by the Houthi ground operations. And just recently, there was a study that said that there was an uptick in, um, in Saudi airstrikes uh, in the past um, a couple of months in the area of Ma'rib, and if, if you know why, it's because there has been an uptick on, in Houthi's ballistic missiles to the area of Ma'rib too. So it's a, it's a two-way dynamic, and, and we're only focusing on, on one uh, issue. So it's, it's crucial to have that stability on the ground. Um, and frankly, once, once the parties on the ground agree, once there is a power sharing dynamic, uh, on the ground, um, uh, what is what is most important is that there is an ability to enforce that power-sharing dynamic and that uh, no party uh, o- militarily overpowers the other. And um, if if that could happen, if Yemen could guarantee that it could be it could secure its borders, that it will not pose a threat to the region and it will not pose a threat to maritime international security, then there is no reason for the Saudis and the Emiratis to intervene in Yemen. Uh, so we need to also remove that reason from existence.
0: Thanks very much. Um, just a few, you have covered uh, these in part, but a few more questions that we had on um, on the extent to which the Saudi and the Emirati uh, interests uh, in Yemen converge or diverge. And um, for example, what is the UAE's support for the STC? Um, and similarly, even within the Emirates itself, do Abu Dhabi and Dubai take different approaches? Um, and one also, and could you say anything more on the, um, the dimensions of Omani facilitation role? Oman has kind of uh, gained this reputation for um, playing an intermediary role, but um, perhaps you can comment on, on any of those points.
2: So maybe maybe I'll I'll talk about the Emirati role and you can talk about the Omani role. But um, uh, with the first point of intervention in Yemen for both the Saudis and the Emiratis, were in Adan, because the first uh, grand military operations and the first ballistic or the first missiles that were fired in the country were actually the Houthi Saleh missiles on uh, on Aden and and when. That incursion happened in the, in, in the South. Um, uh, the president, uh, Abd al Mansour Hadi, requested Saudis help and the Saudis formed this coalition to intervene. Um, uh, there was already local resistance built in Adan. And this, is, this was uh, due to years of, of you know, feeling marginalized naturally. Um, so there was an existing North-South uh, conflict dynamic um, um, that had uh, helped in, in prepping up some type of local resistance in the south that that minimized from uh, the devastating um, Houthi Saleh incursions, but also um, in, within that the Saudis saw it as um, um, both, both the coalition members saw, saw them as as sort of um, the first uh, group that they could uh, train and and endorse. Uh, because for Saudi Arabia, I mean, yes, their general stated objective is restoring the legitimate government of Yemen uh, to power. Uh, but also Saudi's intervention in the war is primarily to protect its border. So Saudi had shifted the majority of focus in securing its, its border um, uh, uh, which is closer to the Houthi areas. It shares, it shares a border with Fada with and it's, it's close to Al-Ma'rib and Al-Jawf. So it's focused around there. And with the Emiratis, they overtook uh, uh, the South. Um, uh, for So it, it's, it sort of seemed like almost a division of labor within the coalition members. But... Um, Also, there are some some historic uh, relations and some uh, actual connections. Like many many of the many of the of the Yemenis had settled in the Gulf for a very long time, so there was a sizable uh, population that had originated from the south of Yemen and lived in the United Arab Emirates as well, and that had made sort of the connection. Uh, uh, between Emirates and the South of Yemen flow a little bit more organically in my opinion uh, the The other bits and pieces here um, is that uh, uh, the UAE had uh, maintained a robust um, uh, counter terrorism program it seeks to uh, increase its influence in the region and has a, and increase its influence internationally through it's a counter-terrorism program and had trained uh, uh, Southern uh, forces uh, or Southern militias to uh, counter um, uh, some, on, on counterterrorism, uh, which specifically the, the South in, in particular was subjected to. We did not see the same um, uh, terrorism operations up in the North country, but. The South was somewhat more susceptible to that than the North. Um, so, by virtue of, of uh, Emirati's involvement in, in the beginning, which was three years of strong coordination and involvement, and uh, because there was already a, a tendency, um, or, or would say maybe a political vacuum, because the government was not, the government was stationed in Riyadh. Abd abu Mansur Hadi was stationed in Riyadh. Uh, So that created uh, this dynamic, whereby the the Emiratis had helped uh, a group of southerners um, uh, capitalize on the on the issue of of, uh, secession um, and helped organize them. It provided them a platform and funding. And um, you know, there are many theories to why this had happened. Um, uh, There's a belief that a, a secessionist South is within the Emiratis' interest, and and um, could even help them cultivate more economic um, gains uh, because of uh, the southern access to uh, Bab el Mandeb interna- uh, maritime security, and also because of uh, Emiratis' clear interest in the island of Socotra, which also uh, could has always and and has always been coveted uh, as a as a as a base for operations, as a military base for operations, uh, so these are the the two things that could make supporting the uh, the secessionist groups in the south has a huge return on investment. Um, now, where the strategy between Saudi Arabia and and Emirat differs is that Saudi Arabia fully believes in unity; it supports. Uh, uh, President Abdel and his government. This has been uh, its decision for a very long time. Uh, but we have, uh, in my opinion, I think that after six years of war, um, the Saudis could be inclined not to put all of their eggs in one basket. They remain a strong ally with the, with the Emiratis. And I think that the relationship with the Emiratis is much more important than the relationship with a Yemeni government that may or may not be there. So, uh, so what, I'm, what I'm seeing right now is a shift in the Saudi public opinion, not necessarily the leadership, but the public opinion is, is, is more like, it's sort of like asking the questions of, of you know, why are we sustaining our support to the government of Yemen on to a unified Yemen when it hasn't really served their interest. And the other issue is that, um, the south of Yemen itself could become a a safer entity to back, as opposed to, um, you know, a power-sharing agreement that might have the Houthis ultimately come to power. You know, so um, having having um, an entity uh, in the south could actually be helpful in maintaining. Pressure on the Houthis and having a reliable ally for, this, for Saudi Arabia to back. So, although there is current, like, although there has been divergence between the Emiratis and the Saudis on this, I, I think that, you know, it's just a projection that, uh, 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 given the way that things have gone, given Saudis' interest in de in escalating and exiting supporting the South might, might present a safe facing um, exit for, for Saudi Arabia, so we might be seeing the dynamics shift there once again.
0: Can I just jump in, because some, one of the questions was actually, um, since you mentioned Socotra, um, what his, who is currently in control of Socotra? And what are, what are the future prospects? Sorry, just to, I know I want to come back to Russia on, on Oman if she wants to say anything on that. But just that, uh, since you mentioned,
2: do you want to say something on Socotra too, Russia, or should no, I? Okay. Well, I mean, uh, uh, Socotra is a complicated dynamic. Uh, the current governor of Socotra is a strong supporter of uh, of the president, uh, Abd Mansour Hadi. Uh, and but then there is a there is a very weird um, dynamic in Sokatra where it's you know it's somewhat split between loyalty to Hadi and loyalty to the Southern Transitional Council, um, and and this makes the the possibility of conflict in this small beautiful island real and unfortunate uh, because it shouldn't be so. So, um, you know, as, as someone who uh, has observed how the conflict has evolved in Yemen, I feel that Socatra is one of the locations that should be completely out of the picture and the politics. It's a largely peaceful island. Um, I can understand having some loyalty to the United Arab Emirates because the UAE has stepped up in, uh, in natural disasters that Suqatra has has faced. Uh, but this this should not automatically translate into um, uh Suqatrians need to um, you know uh, secede or whatever sokharians feel that they have their main loyalty to the south uh, of yemen but but also it 's important to to remember that uh you know the Southern transitional council in Yemen which is largely which has been which popped up in 2018, I believe, uh, was established in 2018 and uh, relatively new, does not represent everybody in the South. And that there are, you know, as I mentioned, the president of Yemen himself is Southerner. So there are factions in the South as well that support unity. Uh, And there are factions within the South that support the, Islah uh, Party in Yemen, which is loosely um, connected to the Muslim Brotherhood, so uh, and and that has enmity with the with the with the SDC. So I mean, as you can see, it's a little bit um, it's a little bit complicated, uh, but you know, Suqatra is best preserved out of out of this this chaos. It should be it should be left out of this conflict because there is no reason for it to experience this conflict and any aid that comes to this island should really be unconditional and free of, you know, long-term investment interests, whether whether commercial investments or uh, political investments.
0: Thanks. Um, Rasha, just to come back to you on um, on the issue of Oman, or if you wanted to also to, to add anything on um, Emirati-Saudi involvement. I
1: think Fatma covered uh, the emirati saudi involvement very well mm-hmm. uh just to add that if they did have some economic interest maybe uh saudi ha- maybe had an interest to have an access for pipelines uh to the arab sea uh uae had interest maybe to control a port as well and they have done that before uh the war they have rented actually at an uh, port. so this is this is economic interest. We, it's not a reason why they are uh, like there is uh, like some people devilize the ro- the role of Saudi Arabia and UAE because of interest and in, and in, the, in these economic interests. This can be discussed separately, uh, negotiated for economic benefits, mutual economic benefits. It can be done in peace. Doesn't have to be uh, like uh, some people justify this as an occupation because of their economic interest. But the, the reality is Yemen is reliant on, on the Gulf now, especially now with the reconstruction, it's going to be reliant on them even more. I, I'm not seeing any Western country uh, stepping up on that department. I haven't seen any commitment so far and we have been calling since Kuwait, since we went to Kuwait in 2016 for an international fund for reconstruction for Yemen and we didn't see any commitment in that regard. Now for Oman role, uh, uh I I believe they are a facilitator for the KSA and uh, Houthis so they host the meetings uh you, before the corona period in in Oman I think they were advising um the Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia how to like I think maybe um advise in terms of uh, establishing a relation direct relation with the Houthis instead of Uh, asking them to compromise their relation with Iran or give it up. So just establishing something like that. Um, This is as far as I know. But I know that Oman's involvement for Yemen as well was always positive in terms of even local mediation. They were involved in many local mediations to release prisoners um, or things like this. Yeah, there was a question about the women representation, specifically the South representation, if you'd allow me to comment on that as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, Generally, the representation and the peace process is very, very weak for women, and this is such a disappointment comparing to what we have achieved during the national dialogue. Um, So the official track one representation of the women representation within the delegates, it's zero and everywhere except for uh, the government delegation, they had one woman. Even the STC did not have any woman in the Riyadh Agreement, or the government in the Riyadh Agreement did not have in their own delegation any women. Uh, all the committees that are formed for implementing Riyadh, for, for the prisoners exchange, for Ta'iz committees, all the main committees that are formed from the peace process, they have no women. Um, women are always found in parallel. We're trying to uh, uh, influence in parallel. Uh, and we're trying to claim our own space and invite those actors to our space to talk to us and influence their decisions. Um, For the Southerners, they have been, specifically those with a a voice for self-determination and independence, they have indeed been completely uh, um, uh, excluded. Whether in the track two process or in uh, not not like in the track two process led by the UN envoy, rather than the track two actors, because some track two actors are only focused on the south issue. Um, so this is just to give some idea about women's uh, participation. Great, thank you. And
0: and actually, we did. Um, you've. Uh, I wanted to get back to asking about. Th- in women's involvement as a whole, because it is always the case that in um, in civil war, women are always sidelined. But and yet, arguably, you can't have a peace process, let alone a just peace process, without taking on board their consideration. So, and I know this is the, um, a peace track initiative. Is how do you raise that and as, as an issue amongst power brokers that they have to take seriously? Like what? How do you do it? Like, (laughs) the process.
1: Um, We have came to the conclusion that we're not going to wait for an invitation and we will just go and claim the space or (laughs) crush whatever meeting they have. (laughs) Um, So the first time uh, for the track two, for the track one process, uh, the first time we decided to send our own delegation was in Geneva uh, 2018. We sent our own delegation uh, and their main... um, uh, mess, um, objective was to share joint messages from the women and to meet with all the actors who were present, whether they are the international diplomats, the UN envoy himself, or the national delegation. Of course, uh, for Geneva, it was easy for us because the UN Palais is basically where the Human Rights Council is held, it's sessions. so it's uh, our playground as human rights defenders, and we know how to access that space. In fact, we accessed it, and we were giving permission to diplomats to come. and to have access to us. So, uh, in that uh, uh, instance, we were able to do it, but the entire process collapsed because the Houthis uh, were not able to arrive. In Stockholm, it was uh, much more difficult. Uh, Stockholm is a new territory for us. And frankly, when we heard it was going to be held in Stockholm, we were very happy because our thinking was, this is a feminist foreign country. Um, I mean, they have a foreign, uh, feminist foreign uh, policy. So we were hoping that uh, the, uh, Stockholm, uh, the Swedes will be more affirm uh, uh, with having women's representation. But we did not see that. Uh, the government came with only one woman. And the Houthis actually came with double their number. Like they were supposed to be 12, they came 24 men. Uh, and uh, the UN envoy trying to fix this situation, he has invited uh, women on the sidelines, his uh, women technical advisory group. However, these women were not even allowed to have uh, space uh, or to be present, not even in the opening ceremony or the closing ceremony. Uh, And uh, uh, I'm not sure uh, uh, how much involved they were in advising and providing technical input my understanding there was no formal consultation during uh the consultation itself with them to 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 support the process um for uh for uh for um yeah I forgot my uh my thoughts but gener- for riyadh for riyadh what we have noticed is that the saudis were more open and this is something i heard from uh Some diplomats, when we talked about uh, including women, they were like, uh, you know, your Gulf partners are not happy with women uh, being present in the peace process, uh, insinuating that it is Saudi Arabia who is blocking uh, women's participation. But we saw in Riyadh the process, we were able to send 16 women to attend the ceremony, and they sent in the front rows, and it was like the organization for it happened very quickly, it was not... uh, as planned, uh, as as we hoped for, but there was room for them to arrive, processing their visas very quickly. There was so much cooperation from the Saudi side to have women in in that space. Uh, So we have now uh, removed the excuse uh, to blame uh, the regional partners. For the national partners, uh, so the the government, for example, and the Houthis, I'm saying the government now have launched the National Action Plan for Women, Peace and Security they have approved it in december and they have a very clear uh, uh, objective to include women in the negotiations by no less than 30 percent so their commitment now is written and approved and they are committed to the national dialogue as well outcomes which is the 30 percent so in terms of commitment from the side of the government they have their commitment and we just need to hold them accountable and impose on them the 30 percent no less than 30 percent quota for the Houthi side The Houthis have appointed a representative for them in New York who is a woman. So they don't really have a problem with having women. During the national dialogue, they had women within their uh, uh, Ansarullah delegation. Uh, 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 They they have issued their uh, vision for 20, I don't know how much. Uh, That vision uh, uh, talks about inclusion of uh, women and youth. So they're not really opposing to having women. So all it takes is only the design process that is led by the UN envoy. And the UN envoy that is, is hesitant to impose uh, the 30% quota because he's worried that it's going to be used as an excuse and things will collapse. But my message to him is that things are already collapsed. Nothing is moving forward. Don't use this <laughs> as well as an excuse. Be firm and ask for it, and it will uh, happen.
0: Thanks. Thanks. Uh, so, actually, I have to. Um, I mean, it's only uh, to be expected that we have a question on the impact of COVID 19. And of course, like just yesterday, it's kind of hit the news that um, the first cases are being reported. Um, and from Yemen, I'm sure that there must be many more. But um, so the question is just uh, how is it likely to impact the um, efforts by women's groups, civil society, and, and youth groups? promoting a more inclusive peace uh, process, do you think that the, the spread of coronavirus virus and COVID-19 will have any uh, particular effects on the peace
1: process? Um, I, I believe when it really hits and they start seeing people dying, it will. Before then, the, the conflict parties were not sensitized uh like when cholera existed we are already the worst humanitarian crisis they were not not sensitive to that uh dengue fever cholera we had all kinds of disasters famine all kinds of disaster there was no reaction to end the war from the national parties until they start dying from corona we will see some response in terms of uh, cease, serious ceasefire mm-hmm.
0: Thanks. Um, So uh, we had another question about the, um, the south. Um, So, uh, and actually, I should say that a lot of the, um, the attendees are thanking you both for your presentations and wishing you um, happy Ramadan and um I'm not going to read all of those out, but so the, the this question is the sovereign issue is being addressed separately to the broader u n process but as you say, the two tracks are interlinked. How do you think the international and regional thinking can be recalibrated in order to secure an inclusive political process that sovereigns feel part of? So if either of you want to to elaborate on what you've already said on the on that um I feel like
2: I spoke a lot on the south so. Um, I'm just going to be brief on this and maybe Russia could add some more, but uh, um, I think much of, you know, the the implementation of the Riyadh agreement is absolutely a good start. Uh, There are requirements such as um, a change in the Riyadh agreement, such as a change in the current cabinet and uh, having more consensus candidates, having a new governor for Aden south of the country. I think cooperation could stem from many of the negative impacts that we're seeing in the South. Uh, I believe that part of the problem uh, in the South is that both the SDC and the Hadi's government are competing for Saudi Arabia's patronage. And uh, perhaps that's leaving uh, President Hadi in a somewhat insecure position as uh, Saudis are expected to leave Yemen, you know, any time. So the, the issue here is that there needs to be a push to have both entities cooperate with each other. Um, uh, because the, the more that this doesn't happen, the more that the secessionist and separatist voices get louder, and the more that the conflict possibilities in the country become uh, real in the south of Yemen, uh, there is a possibility of, of a um, Islah and Islah party and STC conflict in the south, which if that could happen, would have just devastating consequences. And right now there are many groups that are just drumming the, the or beating the drums of war um, to, to march to the south, which I find just really mind boggling after six years of conflict that no one has really learned a lesson and that there's still a thirst for more power and uh, uh, and just absolute control in one area. Um, of course, cooperation is easier said than done. There are real problems and a mutual trust deficit between Hadi government and the SDC. And um, um, I think that part of, part of remed- remedying this is for the government to show real uh, sincerity, both the government and the CC need to show some real sincerity in implementing the the Riyadh Agreement. There needs to be stricter mechanisms for the implementation of the Riyadh Agreement, as well as you know more of of, of pressure from the Saudis for all parties to to implement this and and define uh, define what this agreement is working towards. Because as it is the agreement could read both ways. So the agreement has some tactical um, uh, wins for each and every player. It has tactical wins for the SDC. It has tactical wins for the government of Yemen. What it does, what it lacks is a strategic objective. And the agreement doesn't tell you what it works towards. So in the minds of the Southern Transitional Council, the agreement is working towards separation. But in the minds of Hadi uh, and his loyalists, the agreement is going to restore their power in the country. So absent that that strategic objective, that clarity of, of the objective, um, I, I don't think we, we're going to go anywhere. So I feel like these issues need to be remedied first and then a stricter implementation of the Riyadh agreement with the... With maybe a, a, a you know an idea of a federal Yemen or uh, better management of, of uh, local revenues for southerners uh, uh, and so on and so forth.
0: Thank. You. Um, So I'm going to, we've got about 15 minutes left, and so now I'm jumping from one topic to the next, but um, just to bring Iran into the mix of the international um, players. So um, there's a point, uh, Iran's perspective is that Saudi Arabia's ceasefire is simply intended to rebuild its forces to resume aggression. How much of an impact or influence does Iran's rhetoric have on prospects for inclusive peace? Do you
2: want me to take it? Go ahead, yes.
1: I
0: mean... Um, it, you know, it
2: doesn't serve Iran at this particular point to de-escalate in Yemen. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't serve its interest to uh, ask the Houthis to um, um, stop stop their military incursions. In fact, there is reason to believe that what we're seeing in terms of escalation is a result of of an Iranian. Uh, directive to maximize its input uh, south of the Saudi border. So no one really thinks that that the Saudis want the ceasefire in order to rebuild the forces. In fact, the, the what we have seen in Yemen repeatedly is that every ceasefire had led to the empowerment of the Houthis. And this is actually prior to the current conflict. Like in, in the Sada wars, which were between 2003 to 2010, and these were the wars uh, that uh, the Houthi group launched against their ally Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, at that time. And these wars, each there was six rounds of of ceasefires and truce that was supposed to deescalate the situation. And each one had prepared Houthis even, you know, maybe ten times more than the round before. Uh, so we're seeing this this unfortunately you know unfortunate dynamic of of uh, uh uh just the the of remobilization remilitarization as well after uh after these rounds of fighting um the the and and i think what what is not discussed enough is that whatever the united states and international community is uh, strategy is with Iran often translates in Yemen because the Houthis have become the most favorite actors for the Iranians at the moment. I mean, uh, not even Hezbollah or the Hajj al-Iraq has the same access and power and even access to local revenues that the Houthis have. So um, at at this moment, the Houthis are at the height of their power. And giving it up is very unlikely and will harm Iran's overall interest. So um, I think the way that we can only see shifts is that if there is a shift with the GCPOA, if, 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 there's, a, if there's a return in the deal somehow, that would pressure uh, Iran to um, stop its, its in, or influence, it, not even stop, but just influence the Houthis to de-escalate uh that would be a huge win. But at the time being, I think that the majority of um you know, just, just as somebody who follows Iranian media every day, uh the the emphasis is on um uh the Houthis grievances, the Houthis' sense of victimization and the Saudi aggression without really mentioning uh you know what what the Houthis and Iran can offer at the moment. Uh, so I think that there is a really negative dynamic uh, in this sphere. Um, and it's, it's, even, it's even further complicated because Iran continues to deny its involvement in Yemen. So at least with the Saudis, you can talk to them. They're there in your face. They're saying, OK, this is what we can do. We can, we can negotiate with the Saudis, with the Emiratis. But with the Iran, it's just straight up, you know, we're not involved. Just, you know, this is a local conflict. And this really complicates the issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I, I think maybe I've got time for like two more questions. Um, I have so there is a question about, um, and actually I feel this might be directed to the Middle East Center about in terms of uh, discussing conflict. Um, and do we not need to um, somebody from within Yemen to, who can discuss the economic impact? And um, and actually at the Middle East Center we are. Um, we are uh, very eager to um, have researchers speak about Yemen more broadly. Um, so, uh,
1: a response, would- Jessica? Sorry to this
0: yeah. because every
1: time I am in a panel, people, some people come in and talk about me as a woman in the diaspora. Uh, as uh, we always, as Peace Track Initiative, try to support women from the ground to access all spaces, we nominate them for all spaces. When I'm speaking here, it doesn't mean that uh, there is not an opportunity for someone from the ground to be here. But also, we are very heavily involved with women in the ground. As I said, we have the Women's Solidarity Network. It uh, has uh, 250 women inside and outside the country. We consult with women inside Yemen on regular basis, if not on daily basis. I have I receive uh, messages from them and everything. Every time I come and talk here, I'm talking based on evidence collected from women in the ground. Uh, this does not mean that I'm um, not supporting my fellow women who are in the ground to be here, and we have other events, hopefully, and we will host women from the ground. Uh, sometimes the logistical reasons, uh, connection issues, or the visas uh, before the corona season, this prevent us, but for us, the priority is to really make their voice be heard, and as much as possible for them to, be, uh, to, uh, to access those spaces.
0: Thank you. Thank
2: I, would, I would just quickly add to that is that um, many of the people I speak to um, uh, do have a challenge speaking up in their locality, whether they are in government-controlled areas or even STC or the Houthis areas. And uh, there's often a price for speaking. The, the prisoners that we've mentioned earlier on, there are thousands of prisoners that are prisoners of conscience in Yemen that are locked up because of a tweet or a Facebook post. And uh, we've seen journalists locked up for the past five years uh, during this conflict. So, uh, um, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate the fact that uh, whenever we have access to local voices that we need to amplify them. Um, I'm not, I, I don't feel like I'm speaking on behalf of anybody. I'm just, you know, a political, political analyst giving my political opinion, but um, uh, so much of the information that I get, just like Russia, comes to me firsthand from people on the ground who are not uh, able to articulate their opinion or their position publicly.
0: Thanks. Um, So I think we've got maybe one last question, which uh, again, returning to international, but um, beyond the immediate regional players and the the UN. um, So the question is, what role should there be or could there be for other extra regional powers? So for instance, Russia and China, um, when compared to uh, their involvement elsewhere in the Middle East?
1: Well, they're both involved in Yemen uh it's not but not as much maybe as uh, Syria, but they are involved in Yemen. so we have uh, official nineteen states that we call the G 19 sponsors of the peace process, and uh, Russia and China are involved and in our case actually as Yemen, we are lucky because the p five or the permanent five of the UN Security Council are not opposing each other, so there is always consensus over resolutions. they are being passed into some extent easily. Uh, sometimes the language is amended not to be finger pointing at one actor or the other, but there is general consensus so far. So this is why I think we have, this is a factor for peace rather than a hindrance for peace uh, in our context. Um, Just to, because I saw a a, a question about our uh, role in the Riyadh agreement, uh, for the Riyadh agreement, we were able, as uh, Peace Track and the Women's Solidarity Network, to influence the process. Uh, there were at least 10 articles in the agreement that resonated with our demands, whether the demands that we communicated for the UN Security Council or in our uh, reports or in our initiatives for local peace uh, in different areas. Uh, So these resonated very well in in the agreement, including, for example, removal of camps uh, from the, we said all the cities, but they started with Aden, which is not happening in terms of implementation, but it was reflected in the plan. Um, Yeah, I want to stop here.
0: Thank you so much. Um, So I, 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 there are a few questions that we missed out, but um, I wanted to reiterate from uh, many of the uh, audience that um, thank you so much for your excellent presentations. And um, and it's a privilege to have you both, not physically, but um, as we were saying, it has been uh, uh, online webinars are certainly helping the environment. And uh, <laughs> so there is some good coming from the situation. But um, yeah, thank you for joining us and to everyone who's tuned in. Um, I think we're going to draw it to a close.